After beginning last week with the first phase of this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, today we're going to walk through this next phase of the conversation, step by step, covering what we see along the way. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 14. Today we're picking up at verse 15 and going to 26. You remember from last week that Jesus claimed to be able to give the woman water which would satisfy her and which would give her eternal life. And we know from our vantage point that Jesus wasn't talking about H2O. He wasn't talking about that kind of water, but he was talking about a new relationship with God who is like a spring of living water. But of course, at first, the woman didn't understand that that's what Jesus was talking about. She answers him as if he's just literally offering her a drink of the H2O from this well. She says, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. So obviously she's not getting that this is an analogy. This is a metaphor. Jesus is speaking figuratively. So as of verse 11, the woman does not understand yet that Jesus is speaking Figuratively. And so she's initially dismissive of Jesus' claim. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. It's clear that all these questions are rhetorical and that her assumed answer is no. He can't give her any water. This man to whom she speaks, he can't give her any water, let alone better water than this well has been providing reliably ever since ancient times. But Jesus doubles down on his claim in verses 13 and 14 and essentially says, actually, I am greater than Jacob. And I can give you better water than Jacob. And now we come to our text for today's sermon. Look with me as we begin at verse 15, in which the woman says to Jesus, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The woman challenges Jesus to back up his claim to be able to give her living water. Verse 15 is essentially the woman's challenge to Jesus to prove it. Okay then? Give me this water so that, as you say, I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come to this well to draw water. After all, that's what Jesus had promised, isn't it? Something along those lines. And so she's basically saying, okay then, go ahead. Give me this water. Verse 16 then is Jesus' response to her challenge. His statement in verse 16 is the first step that he takes toward giving her the living water that she has now challenged him. Okay, give it. Jesus needs first to establish credibility in her eyes. Second, he needs to convince her of her need for what he offers. And he begins to do both. By saying to her, go, call your husband, and come here. 
The woman responds, I have no husband. And Jesus gains credibility by demonstrating supernatural knowledge. You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. The woman recognizes that Jesus never could have known this, apart from supernatural knowledge. And so she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Credibility established. This is, last week I used the analogy of if you were in the the aisle at Massey or whatever supermarket, trying to buy some water for an event you were having, a bunch of bottled water or something, someone came up to you and said, I can give you living water. You You wouldn't take that kind of comment on with much credibility. But if that person said, I know who you are, and said your name, your birth date, your ID number, your address, all of a sudden now you're ready to talk. That's something like what's going on here in this situation. Jesus has established now credibility with this woman. Now, as to the matter of convincing her of her need for what he offers her, Jesus has also pointed out the unfulfilling nature of her romantic life. So in saying, you're right, you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, One thing he's done is he's established credibility. Another thing he's done is he has pointed out the unfulfilling nature of her romantic life. Remember, Jesus wasn't talking about H2O. Jesus' claim wasn't that the woman wouldn't need H2O anymore. It wasn't actually that she would never have to come to this well to draw H2O again. Jesus' point was that she was going to be satisfied with what he would give her in a way that is analogous to the way that water quenches thirst. You're never going to be thirsty again. Not you're never going to drink H2O again. You're never going to need to drink H2O again. That wasn't the point. But there was a sense in which you will be quenched. Your thirst will be quenched by what I will give you. You'll be satisfied by what I will give you in a way that's analogous to water's quenching of thirst. This woman who has had five husbands and is on the sixth man, though not married to him, may find in God what she hasn't yet found and can never find in a man. True satisfaction. And she may find in God through this man with whom she speaks at the well, forgiveness for her sins, leading to eternal life. Jesus is demonstrating to her here by pointing out, you've had five husbands and you're with a sixth man. Jesus is demonstrating to her here that she actually is thirsty in a way that the string of relationships that she's been involved in could never quench The woman's need for satisfaction has been drawn to the fore in this conversation. The woman's need for forgiveness of sins has also implicitly been drawn to the fore as her idolatrous pursuit of satisfaction elsewhere than in God has been drawn to the fore. Jesus is putting his finger on a touchy subject in her life. You imagine... If you knew this woman 
and you're sitting around at, at a dinner party and you know her and her boyfriend start exchanging you know some flirtatious comments or looks or something and you say well this probably won't last you've had five relationships before you could imagine that that's a sensitive subject to bring up obviously these are the kinds of things that you don't really talk about you sort of pretend that they didn't happen you pretend that this is not actually the pattern of your life. You pretend that this is not actually the way things always go. And you pretend that this time is going to be different. But what Jesus is pointing out here is you are actually trying to quench your thirst in a way that will never actually quench your thirst. You actually are thirsty, but these relationships aren't going to quench that. You've been idolatrously pursuing satisfaction elsewhere, ultimately, than in God. So let's talk. You shall have no other gods before me. What about idolatries of the heart? The things we put in the place of God as ultimate in our lives. In this case, romantic relationships. You shall have no other gods before me. This is what's coming to the fore of this conversation, as Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This is what's coming to the fore. Jesus is not only establishing his credibility by demonstrating supernatural knowledge of her string of broken relationships. Jesus is also revealing the woman's need for satisfaction and eternal life in God. And at this juncture in the conversation, the woman does what many people do when spiritual conversations start hitting a little close to home. The woman changes the subject. She knows immediately that she has been seen. She has been understood. She has been perceived. She knows immediately that this man has insight into the machinations of her heart. It couldn't have simply been a good guess. This man sees her and knows her. And it's uncomfortable for her. Remember the end of John chapter 2. Jesus knew what was in man. And in John chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he cuts to the heart of the matter, which was the matter of the heart. In John chapter 4, he's doing the same thing here. He's getting to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of her heart. He knew what was in man, generally, and he knew what was in this particular woman in front of him. She's been seen. She's been perceived. And it's uncomfortable for her as he speaks to her heart. And this is the way that the Word of God often works, whether uttered by Jesus to the woman at the well, whether preached from a pulpit, whether read in the privacy of your own home. This is the way that the Word of God often works. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Sometimes we feel seen, perceived, understood, known in an uncomfortable way. As God reveals to us his thorough knowledge of our frame, including the idolatries of our hearts, including our thirst, our need, and the way that our other pursuits haven't quenched. And it's unpleasant. We'd rather change the subject. We'd rather look away, not make eye contact. And that's exactly what this woman does here. As many of us are prone to do, she changes the subject. As many of us are prone to do, in this building, here this morning, she turns the conversation to theology. Because as D.A. Carson has aptly pointed out, it's always easier to talk theology than to deal with truth that is personally distressing. Let's talk about a doctrinal point. Let's debate eschatology. Let's not talk about how the word of God is hitting home to my heart. Let's not talk about my sin. Let's not talk about how God is dealing with me. Let's talk about theology. What do you do, Christian, when the word of God is convicting, revealing, exposing the sin in your life? When you feel known by God, not, not in that comforting sense like he knows all the hairs on our heads, but in that uncomfortable sense of he actually sees me. I'm naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom all must give an account. What do you do? Do you change the subject? Do you find a theological point to debate? Because it's easier to talk about that than how God is dealing with your heart. Do you come on Sundays because it's general, but avoid community group because that might hit a little too close to home? Or do you come to community group hoping that the conversation is going to focus on a theological point rather than a point of application? Or hoping that you won't have to talk about how God is dealing with you personally? By his word. Christian, may it never be so. The woman tries to change the subject, as we are often prone to do. But nevertheless, Jesus is gracious, and Jesus graciously answers her theological question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, she says in verse 20. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, let's not talk about 
by a string of broken relationships. I perceive that you are a prophet. On this mountain, we Samaritans worship, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. See her sleight of hand? Ah, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's talk theology then. Jesus answers, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's consider Jesus' response more closely as he digresses here from his pursuit of her heart to talk about this theological question that she's raised. First, Jesus asserts that the Jews were actually right on this particular point. You worship what you do not know. That is, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And in saying this, Jesus is not saying that every Jew was saved or every Jew was a true worshiper of Yahweh or whatever. He's simply saying that the Jewish religion is correct. The same way that you might say that Christians worship what we know. Christian, those in Christian churches worship what we know, whereas Hindus, Buddhists, atheists worship what they do not know. It's not saying that everyone who walks in the door of a Christian church is converted, but that this is actually the right religion. That's what Jesus is saying. Here, the Jewish religion is based on knowledge, not ignorance, as the Samaritan religion was based on ignorance. In other words, the Jewish religion is based in truth and not in speculation. The Jews worship in truth, the Samaritans worship in speculation, speculatively. The Jews then, in some sense, were right in viewing the Samaritans as religiously impure. The Samaritans didn't worship according to what had been revealed. Jerusalem was the right time to worship. Pardon me, the right place to worship at that time in redemptive history. The Samaritans wrongly rejected the Old Testament scriptures outside of Genesis to Deuteronomy. So the Samaritans accepted Genesis to Deuteronomy, but Joshua, Judges, so on and so forth, they rejected. They had their own edited version of Joshua, but it doesn't really, it doesn't overlap with the biblical book of Joshua. So the Samaritans rejected everything that comes after Deuteronomy wrongly. And then that error caused them further errors as they consequently rejected all that was taught in later scriptures. And so they wrongly rejected the truth that Jerusalem was the right place to worship, as taught in 2 Kings 9, for example, the dedication of the temple. When Solomon builds it, he prays, O Lord, would you be here in a special way? And the Lord answers his prayer, essentially saying, yes, I will be here in a special way. I'll be in Jerusalem, in the temple, in a way that I'm not anywhere else. God's omnipresent, of course, but that's not the point. That's not the sense of it. But the Samaritans rejected that development in redemptive history because they rejected 
the revealed truth of Scripture that was contained in 2 Kings. So Jesus asserts that the Jews were basically right over against the Samaritans because the Jews worshipped in truth and the Samaritans worshipped speculatively. And Jesus asserts in verse 24 that the requirement of worshipping in truth, that is, according to the prescription of God's word, will continue. Those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is not going to stop caring whether people worship according to his prescription or not. That's not changing. However, Jesus says that one thing is changing. Namely, that true worship will no longer be geographically restricted to any one particular place. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. And this is because, as Jesus teaches in this section, God is spirit. In other words, God, as spirit, is not geographically restricted. He is not spatially located. That's the difference between being spirit or being corporeal or in a body. God is spirit, and so he's not spatially located. He's not geographically restricted. Because of that, it actually doesn't intrinsically matter where you worship, so long as you worship in spirit, as long as your heart is in it. We're not talking about what we do with the body at this point. We're talking about what we do with the spirit at this point. Jesus is teaching this woman that since God is spirit, it doesn't intrinsically matter where we worship. It's not as if you might worship too far away from where God is spatially located and he might not be able to hear you. It's not as if God is in China or God is in America or God is in Australia and here we are in Barbados and I mean we're, we're trying to make a joyful noise under the Lord but that noise is not loud enough because God is spatially located somewhere else. That's not the way it is. God is spirit. He's not spatially located. And so it doesn't intrinsically matter where we worship. It mattered in the old covenant simply because God had said so. But Jesus is teaching this woman that things were about to change. The restriction given on the geographical location of worship in the Old Testament was about to be removed. And here's the logic of the change. The ceremonial laws given to the Jews would be abrogated, that means ended, as Jesus comes in fulfillment of everything they pointed to. So you don't need a lamb anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the true lamb. To whom? all the lambs in the Old Testament were pointing us. And you don't need a priest anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the true priest to whom all of the priests in the Old Testament were pointing us. And you don't need a temple anymore because Jesus is the true temple to whom 
the Old Testament temple was pointing us. This is why Jesus is saying the hour is coming and is now here because it's all changing with him, with his arrival. He's about to tell her that he's the Christ. So this is the, this is the implicit logic here, which admittedly we're inferring from other texts. Jesus is not saying that explicitly. He's simply telling her at this point, the hour is coming and is now here when you don't have to worship in Jerusalem anymore. But it's not as if it's going to move from Jerusalem to Mount Gerizim or somewhere else. The hour is coming when it's not going to matter at all where you geographically worship. It never intrinsically mattered because God is spirit. And now with the coming of him to whom that temple was pointing us, things are changing. The restriction of worship to the temple in Jerusalem only was never intended to be permanent as the institution of the sacrificial system, bulls, goats, lambs, was never intended to be permanent. The Old Testament priests from the tribe of Levi was never intended to be permanent. All of those things were intended to teach us something else, to give us categories for thinking about something else. The priests gave us a category for mediators, someone who represents God to us, and someone who will represent us to God. The lambs taught us of substitution and that there's a penalty for sin, but a substitute may bear it. So the temple teaches us that the place where God will meet man is appointed by God and not chosen by man. God says where he's going to meet you. You don't say, well, I'll meet you over on Mount Gerizim. God says, "Uh uh-uh, not so fast. You meet me where I say, and only where I say. And so worship then in the Old Testament was intended to teach us that God chooses where he's going to meet you. And that's the only place that's acceptable. You can't meet him anywhere else. You can't choose willy-nilly where you're going to meet God. It doesn't work that way. Worship then was only in that temple. But that temple points us to Jesus, who is the true temple. Which means God is saying, I'm only going to meet you here in the person of my son. I'm not going to meet you anywhere else. You don't get to choose where you meet me. I tell you where you meet me. And so that geographic restriction was intended to teach us about the exclusivity of worship in the new covenant, acceptable worship being offered only in Christ Jesus. So worship then was only in that temple. Worship now is only in Jesus, the true temple. But as long as worship is offered in Christ, then it doesn't matter geographically where the worship is offered. It never mattered intrinsically because God is spirit. But God instituted that to teach you that he's going to appoint where he meets you. Now that that has taught us that lesson and we know that it's only in Christ. God is spirit. So don't worry about where you are geographically. Just worship him in the place, so to speak, that meeting place between God and man that he's appointed in Christ.
This is one of the freedoms of the new covenant. When I was in Malawi in 2017, we visited a group of Christians who had recently been able to build a building to worship in thanks to subsidies from their denominational headquarters. And during our visit, the pastor said, we're so thankful for this building because we used to meet under that tree. I understand his point that it's more comfortable to meet in a building than under a tree. But the freedom of the new covenant is such that God accepts our worship in Christ Jesus. Whether it's offered in a grand, stately, breathtaking cathedral, or whether it's offered under a tree. What access to God we have in Christ. You don't need to go to a special holy place. You don't even need to come to a building like this to have access to God. People think sometimes that their prayers are going to be heard more if they pray them in the church. Especially in churches that are grand and stately. And maybe they have kneelers on the pews or at the front where you can come and get on your knees and you feel like, in this place, surely God will hear me. One of the freedoms of the new covenant is that God says, worship me anywhere you want, so long as it's in Christ Jesus. This is one of the freedoms of the new covenant. And this frees us up as a church. The church is the people, remember, not the building. This frees up a, us up as a church to meet wherever is convenient for us to meet. For now, we meet in this building. Maybe we'll meet here indefinitely. Maybe something will change and we have to meet somewhere else. But we have access to God in Christ such that we may worship wherever geographically and it's acceptable to God because our true temple has come and God meets us there in him. Jesus teaches then, in this digression from the main point of his conversation with the woman, that our worship must be informed by Scripture in the New Covenant, no less than it was informed by Scripture in the Old. Remember, people still have to worship in truth, just as the Jews worshipped in truth, in contrast to the Samaritans who worshipped speculatively. We still need to worship in truth. And Jesus teaches also that it must continue to be sincere, or from the heart, He must continue to worship in spirit. But Jesus is teaching her that a change is taking place and that it no longer matters where it is geographically offered, where worship is geographically offered. And we may infer from other portions of Scripture, including John chapter 2, which readers should be familiar with by the time they get to John chapter 4, that the reason for this change is that worship is now to be offered only in Christ as old covenant worship was to be offered only in Jerusalem since Jesus is the true temple as taught to us by John chapter 2. So that's the substance of Jesus' reply to this woman's attempt to change the subject. She asks a question trying to divert Jesus from the main point and look, Jesus graciously answers it. He gives her 
a little explanation of how this works. What's staying the same and what's changing. This woman responds now with what she, it seems she hopes will be a conversation closer. Look at verse 25. It's as if she says, well, nice talking to you. I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It's been a pleasure. I have my water now. Thank you for that explanation. I bid you adieu. (laughs) But Jesus then circles back to the main point of his conversation. He says, I who speak to you am he. It's as if he's saying, not so fast. We're not finished here. I answered your question. And more than that, I'm telling you that I'm not just a prophet. As you acknowledged I was. A moment ago, which we read about in verse 19. I am not just a prophet, but the prophet, the Teheb, as the Samaritans called him. The prophet par excellence predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Listen as I read it. Moses is speaking and he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses is speaking of a prophet who will be like him, but greater than him. That's the sense, even in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And the Samaritans accepted Deuteronomy, you remember? They accepted Deuteronomy as scripture. And so they were looking out for this Teheb, this prophet, Par excellence, predicted in Deuteronomy 18.15. Look at the escalation that occurs between verses 19 then and verse 26. Look first at verse 19 where she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now look at verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. Or I know that the Teheb is coming. For the Samaritans, those were the same person. He who is called Christ... When he comes, that is the prophet, the prophet, the Teheb, will tell us all things. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I'm not just a prophet, but the prophet. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Teheb. Jesus is circling back around to the main point of the conversation. After graciously addressing her diversion away from the main point of the conversation, Jesus circles back around to the main point, which is that he is able to give her living water. And she should ask him for a drink. Look at the wisdom and the skill of Jesus in this passage in establishing his credibility, in speaking to her heart and pointing out her need, answering her question, even though it was an attempted diversion away from the main point, and then bringing the woman back to the main subject of the conversation. 
which was his person, his own person, and what he offered her. Remember John chapter 4 and verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We're back there now. But in the intervening conversation, Jesus has told her who he is. If you knew that uh, who I am, now you know who I am. If you knew the gift of God, now you know satisfaction and eternal life. A new relationship with God who is a spring of living water. The required response at this juncture of the conversation is implied. You know who I am. You now know who I am. And you now know the gift of God. Come and drink. At this point, the woman would have understood the water analogy or the water metaphor that Jesus was using. If he was the Messiah or the Teheb, then he was the means of God's provision of sustenance as Moses had been in the desert at the time of the Exodus, leading and caring for God's people. The Samaritans weren't expecting a literal Exodus from Samaria, but she would be able to understand the, the figurative implications of this. If Jesus was the truer and better Moses, then he was going to be the leader of God's people, the carer for God's people, the one through whom God would provide all that was needful for God's people, the one who would give water from the rock in a desert place. Jesus was the true lamb, the true priest, the true temple, and the true prophet the true Moses. This realization would have dawned on her at this point as she realized who it was that stood before her. We aren't told explicitly everything that the woman did or said in direct response to this. We read in verses 28 and 29 that she left her water jar and went into town and said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Maybe that can this is suggestive like well why don't you come to church and find out we might suggest things to people that we're actually certain about it might be a question like that or it may be that at this point she was still wondering but at some point we know by inference from this passage that she believed and testified to others of her belief of her confidence in this Jesus, that he was the true and better Moses who would give water from the rock in a desert place, which would give life to us. In other words, that he was the savior of the world. Because in verse 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard from ourselves, for ourselves, pardon me, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So at some point, she came to testify to them that Jesus was the Savior of the world. We read in verse 41 that many more believed because of Jesus' word. 
which implies that she believed. So this woman, at last, through Jesus' persistence, through his wisdom, through his skill, through, of course, the supernatural drawing of the Holy Spirit, through this encounter at the well, through his pursuit of her heart, through his love and compassion, through his grace to teach her heart to fear, through the grace that relieved her fears. This woman believed. What are we to make of all this? So what? It's a nice story about how this woman came to faith. What of it for us? There are at least two applications. One is that we should worship in spirit and in truth. We print that line inside our programs every week above the order of worship because this is the only acceptable way to worship in spirit and truth. Just as in the old covenant, it was possible to worship wrongly. So in the new covenant, it's possible to worship wrongly. Those who do not worship in spirit are worshiping wrongly in both the Old Testament and new. And those who don't worship in truth are worshiping wrongly in both the Old Testament and new. Many in Old Testament times wrongly thought that they were correct if they did only outward things correctly. That if they did the correct outward things, God would be pleased with their worship. But David sets us straight in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, where he says, You you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. True worship has always involved the spirit or the heart in both Old Testament times and new. So we must worship in spirit. We must also worship in truth. The Samaritans were not worshiping in truth as the Jews were in the matter of the correct location of worship. Jesus teaches in this passage that the Jews were worshiping according to knowledge of God received in scriptures. While the Samaritans were worshiping according to their speculations about God, arising from their ignorance of scripture, since they rejected everything in the Old Testament that came after Deuteronomy. So it is also in this day and age that some Christians worship according to knowledge of God received in Scripture, while others worship according to their speculations about God arising from ignorance of Scriptures. As it was then, so it is now. It is possible not to worship in truth. It's possible to worship not according to knowledge. It's possible to worship not according to what you know, but in ignorance. We must, therefore, be no less careful to worship in truth now under the new covenant as the Israelites were supposed to be careful to worship in truth then 
under the old covenant. We are not to guess or speculate about how God would like to be worshipped. But we must worship him in truth. According to our knowledge of how he wants to be worshipped. According to the scriptures. As John 4.24 says, and if there ever was a time for Jesus to rescind this important point, now would be it as he's explaining that one thing is changing. He could well have explained that another thing was changing too, and you don't have to worship according to the prescription of scripture anymore. But Jesus doesn't do it. He says, yeah, the geographical thing is dropping off, but you still need to worship in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4 and verse 24. So that's the first application of this section of scripture, though it's not the main thrust of this text. It's incidental to the overall conversation that Jesus has with the woman, since she brings it up as a diversion. The second application arises from the main theme of this passage. Jesus is inviting this woman to ask him for a drink, so to speak. After answering her question, Jesus turns the conversation again back to his own person and work. In verse 26, I who speak to you am he. By this point in the conversation, she knows the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to her. The required response is implied. Come and drink. Just as it dawned on her who Jesus was, and she was brought to a decision point, so each and every one of you here today have been brought again to a decision point. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the one who is able to give you a drink of living water? Which satisfies and wells up to eternal life. What will you do with the one who knows what is in you? Who sees you? And who exposes you by his word so that you might see your need? What will you do with the one who patiently circles back around to this point with you again and again? As you hear the gospel over and over, even inside these very walls, from your friends or from family members. What will you do with this one who patiently circles back around, back around to this point? Come and drink. Many of us have already come to faith in Christ, but some haven't. Those of you who are not yet trusting, believe today. As this woman did, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That He's able to give you water, which will satisfy you and give you life, as Moses gave water in the wilderness, in that desert place so long ago. 
That was this woman's conclusion arising from this conversation with Jesus. Unbelievers, may it also be your conclusion as we continue to look at this passage and see Jesus with this woman over and over, inviting her, come, drink.